welcome to the Transforming Society podcast. Today we're speaking to Stephen Cook and Tanya Mason, authors of What Have Charities Ever Done For Us? The Stories Behind the Headlines, published by Policy Press. Their book rebalances the conversation around charities that has become increasingly negative over recent decades by showing the breadth and depth of the contribution charities make. But why are we becoming increasingly negative about charities and what should be done to combat this and why? Hi, Stephen and Tanya. Hi. Thank you for speaking to us. Um, So I want to start by saying that the book is a wonderful, comprehensive exploration of what charities bring to society, and it covers tiny community groups to huge international organizations, and it also explores the complexity and controversy around things like education and governance and charity. It's a big, huge story to tell. Why did you want to write the book? Well, it all began uh, actually on a flight to America when a contact of ours, uh, Joe Sexton, who runs a research agency in the charity sector called NFP Synergy, um, read a book called The Arts Dividend by Darren Henley, who's the chief executive of Arts Council England. Um, And The Arts Dividend is basically a series of stories about different arts organisations around the country and the benefits that they bring to those that come into contact with them. Um, And Joe read this book and thought, now we need something like that for the wider charity sector. Um, Although I should note here that many arts organizations are charities themselves as well. Uh, But I think the driver for Joe was that, um, you know, charities remain almost invisible in the wider political and social narrative, particularly among uh, politicians and influencers. And we have some sympathy with that uh, view too. And we felt that charities deserved a bit more credit than they were getting. So we agreed to um, to write a book that told a more positive story um, about the charity sector. Um, and also, I think for me, I'm constantly frustrated by people's sort of narrow perceptions about charities. You know, if you talk to anyone about charities, more often than not, everyone's got an opinion, you know, and that opinion will be, Oh, you know, at least vaguely derisory. They all kind of complain about being stopped in the street by fundraisers or chief executives being paid too much or, you know, that charities are just an arm of government. You know, there's there's a myriad different moans that people will trot out. Um, and these are often things that they have no personal experience of or connection to. They're just things that they've read in the Daily Mail or heard their mates say down the pub. But then if you ask people about the particular charity that they support, you know, their tone completely changes. They'll have nothing but praise for the charity that they donate to or volunteer for that, I don't know, rescues abandoned horses or sends disabled kids on holiday or saves the rainforest or whatever. But they invariably fail to put those two things together. They fail to understand that these are all part of the same charity sector Um, And yes, of course, it's a sector which is messy and complex and complicated, but it's also inventive and determined and generally very good value for money. Um, So, you know, for me, I think this book aims to broaden people's understanding of the wider sector and hopefully to temper some of those criticisms that get levelled at charities, um, often unfairly, I think. Um, But yeah, you know, Joe Sexton deserves uh, full credit and um, and our thanks for having the foresight to think of the idea in the first place. Thank you, Joe. Um, That that contradiction and how we think about charities is really interesting. I think. Mm -hmm. Um, Why why is it? Why do you think we've become more negative about charity in the last couple of decades? 
Well, I think there are two main reasons. Um, firstly, there's been a succession of bad publicity about charities. Uh, for example, uh, we had the Cup Trust, which was a massive pseudo-charity that set out to fraudulently claim hundreds of thousands of pounds in gift aid from the Treasury. It failed, fortunately. Um, then there was a massive outcry, really, about high-pressure fundraising by charities after the suicide of a, um, an elderly lady in Bristol. Um, who had been really inundated with stuff from charities, uh, like a lot of elderly people were. Um, then there was Kids' Company, which most people have, have heard about, Camilla Batman-Gellage, and the spectacular collapse of her charity for children in uh, 2015. And then again, there was uh, Oxfam in Haiti, a scandal which burst out when the Times got hold of the uh, the story that um, the people running the organization in the uh, Haiti earthquake um, were using the services of prostitutes. Not a very good look. So there was these successions of um, bad publicity. And then secondly, I think there's been a big change in the political climate since the coalition and conservative governments took over in 2010 including a feeling that charities were really getting above themselves and should get back in their box. Uh, the coalition conservative governments were um, put a greater distance really between themselves and charities than had been there between um, uh, Blair and Brown, who are much more um, uh, sympathetic in a way to the world of charities, which they called the third sector. So the mood music changed and um, financial support was reined back over the last decade. And uh, this all caused a shift in public opinion, really, I think, where charities were no longer seen as, um, as saintly or above criticism. Yes, and I would also say, um, just, to, just to add, really, that it's not only the charity sector that has suffered from a decline in kind of public trust and confidence in recent years. You know, all kinds of institutions, government bodies, the police... Um, you know, all, all sorts of uh, all sorts of institutions and organisations in, in the private sector as well have have kind of suffered from that similar decline. There's, there just seems to be um, less kind of deference to all sorts of authority these days. Um, and there's been a big shift in the media's approach and attitude to charities as well. Now, I would say that up until, I don't know, 15 or maybe 20 years ago, the media would just not publish negative stories about charities, really. They were, you know, they were they were on a pedestal to some extent. Um, and that has really changed. And some parts of the national press have a have an almost a, a malevolent um, attitude towards charities now and seem to actively go looking for uh, for negative stories. Um, and, and that, you know, coupled with social, the proliferation of social media means that anyone that's got an opinion um, about, you know, any, any kind of disapproval or displeasure with charities has a platform to be able to voice that. Um, and so charities have been on the receiving end of that as, as, well, as well as all kinds of other sectors and organisations. So to counterbalance this, your book contains many stories of the positive contributions charities have made. What do you think are the most powerful stories in the book? Well, of course, charities were the main providers of healthcare, education, relief of poverty for centuries before any of these were provided by the state. 
And their other big historical achievements have included pushing for the abolition of slavery, votes for women, foundation of the RSPCA and the NSPCC. And more recently, charities have been deeply involved in the promotion of gay rights, women's rights and race equality. And in this century, in the uh, recent years, the ban on smoking in public, place, in public places and the outlawing of fox hunting were driven mainly by charities. Yeah, there are, you know, there are there are tons of really great examples of, uh, of and case studies of charities in the book. Um, I think for me, one that really stands out for me is the um, the RNID case study, which is a few years old now, but um, it's a brilliant example of the way that charities have, can transform public services. Um, so, uh, you know, twenty years ago or so, anyone that had hearing loss and that is a lot of people you know about over half of people over 60 they they were prescribed with these kind of clunky analog hearing aids and um you know they weren't very successful they weren't very effective they tended to amplify all sound and people just weren't wearing them you know research showed that they were sitting in people's drawers um and uh and there were these you know new digital hearing aids had been uh, devised and launched but um, they were very expensive. You know, they cost about two and a half thousand pounds each, which put them out of um, put them out of range of most people. Um, but the RNID, which is the Royal National Institute for Deaf People, could see that with the huge purchasing power that the NHS can bring, you know, they could they could transform um, the audiology services for you know for millions of people across the UK. So basically, they, um, you know, they knew that it wasn't just a case of buying a whole lot of hearing aids. They had to actually modernise the whole, the whole of the audiology service, and that was clinics and and all kinds of things. Because, you know, the, these these places were they were run down. They were the equipment in them was old fashioned or obsolete, and staff morale was really low. So the RNID put together a business plan and took it to the health minister and. Um, to cut a long story short, the government went for it and basically gave the RNID £125 million over about eight years, I think it was, to um, to modernise uh, the audiology service on the NHS. And it was a huge success. You know, 350 clinics were either uh, created or upgraded over that time. Um, the price of digital hearing aids was able to fall to about £165 from two and a half thousand. And um, one and a half million people were fitted with uh, with these digital hearing aids over that time. So, you know, that was a that was a great success story. Um, and, uh, oh, you know, there are there are so many more we could we could pluck out. Um, but there's a, just another one I wanted to mention um, that we've that we've got in the book is the Flying Seagull Project. This is a um, just a tiny international charity that basically consists of a troupe of actors and singers and entertainers who go out to um, children's institutions in Romania or slums in Ghana or refugee camps in Greece. And they dress up as clowns and sing songs and do circus tricks and basically make the children laugh. Um, so in Moria Camp on Lesbos Island in Greece in 2018, they put up a big top circus tent and did several shows a day for weeks on end, entertaining these kids who are stuck through no fault of their own and, you know, often unimaginable conditions. Um, and they just take them take them out of themselves for an hour or two and let them just play games and sing songs and have fun. You know, I just love them. They're a brilliant charity. So that's probably my personal favourite in the book. 
That's where you really make a difference to people's lives, isn't it? Those just for those few hours, those kids' lives will have been transformed. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And the story about the move to digital hearing aids makes me think about how charities do give us a lot that we perhaps take for granted. Mm -hmm. There are lots of other examples in the book that made me think about this, where Mm -hmm. charities provide services. that we do take for granted, but actually underpin a lot of aspects of our lives. So hospices were one that stood out for me. Can you give any other examples of services we see as vital that we wouldn't have if not for charities? I suppose the most prominent examples are the lifeboats, which have always been a charity ever since their foundation in the 19th century. And then more recently, the air ambulances. I mean, the air ambulances were a good example of of charities acting as pioneers. National Health Service didn't want anything to do with them at first when they were first suggested. But once they were established by charities, everyone eventually accepted that they had an important part to play and were now partially state-funded. And you've also got protection of the environment, nature, wildlife. These are driven by charities like the National Trust, the RSPB, and uh, a wide range of uh, local charities as well, the Wildlife Trusts um, all over the country. And of course, as mentioned before, before the welfare state was properly established in 1945, most hospital care and education was provided through charities. Yes, and I would just add also, uh, I think the cancer charities are uh, probably fall into that bracket as well, just because... You know, if you've had a cancer diagnosis, organisations like Macmillan Cancer Support, Click Sargent, Teenage Cancer Trust, you know, they suddenly become essential services to you. Um, and one of the charities that we look at in some detail in the book is um, is a small charity called Hope for Tomorrow, which brings cancer treatment closer to patients by providing chemotherapy and other treatments in these kind of big mobile units. They're, they're like big buses. Um Uh, And, you know, when people are going through what is very likely to be one of the scariest and most overwhelming experiences of their lives, so much of that stress and um, and difficulty and time commitment can be reduced by bringing bringing the treatment to the patient and eliminating the need to um, for them to visit hospital. So, you know, that that must be such a huge thing for them and their families and um, and seen as an essential service at the time by those service users. So in the book, you also unravel how and where charities sit in the context of government. It's clear that this relationship can be quite complicated and also around how far they're allowed to get involved in politics. What are the key points to consider here? Well, the question of charities getting involved in politics is highly contested and controversial. Um, I think what lies behind it is that there are in effect two competing visions of the purpose of charities. One is Lady Bountiful, stooping to alleviate the suffering of society but staying clear of the rights and wrongs, leaving that to the politicians. And the other is that of the, the campaigner, helping those in need, yes, but also striving to change the conditions that, that cause their suffering in the first place. And the it's a century-old argument, really, about the extent to which charities are allowed to get involved in politics. The current position is uh, described in a document from the Charity Commission known as CC9. Um, It was a guide that was last updated in 2008 during the 
Labour government led by Gordon Brown. Essentially, charities cannot support a political party as such, and political activity cannot become the reason for the charity's existence. But charities can campaign for their legitimate charitable objectives, which may coincide with part of a political party's programme. It's not always easy for charities to follow, but the Charity Commission's guidance is the key document. But there's also the so-called Lobbying Act, passed in 2014, which places strict limits on the spending by non-party organisations during general elections and other elections and referendums. And that affects charities as well, and uh, it places strict limits on expenditure and what they can and can't do. And it illustrates really how the, the whole interface between charities and politics has always been a hot potato in modern times. It's like to continue to be so. But despite these difficulties, there are quite a few examples of where charities have been able to change policy. In the book, you mention junk food advertising, the smoking ban, and also Stonewall and gay rights. Would this progress have been made without charities, do you think? Um, yeah, I, I think most people don't really have a good idea of the huge amount of work it takes to achieve changes on you know on these scales there's so much groundwork that charities do um, from you know in the first instance imagining how the world could be different and then dreaming up ways to make that change happen you know and that can involve identifying and um, you know and contacting the politicians that that care about those issues uh, poring over the minutiae of policy proposals and deciding how to respond to them, uh, running public advertising campaigns or perhaps engaging with relevant private sector organisations, uh, trying to get newspapers to publish stories about, about the issue or, or influencing through social media. You know, there are charities are, are pretty wily. There are plenty of tools at their disposal and, you know, they use them well. They are generally expert campaigners. Um, I think one one example in the book that stands out for me is time to change um, the campaign around uh, mental health, because I think we can all really feel the change in public perceptions around mental health in the last few years. You know, that's pretty indisputable, I think. Especially um, in the pandemic, I think, as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And this, you know, this kind of tired complaint that's one of the things that you, you do hear trotted out about charities is that, you know, that they're too political. Oh, it just makes me so frustrated because, you know, everything is political. Charitable purposes are concerned with issues like relieving poverty and achieving equality of opportunity and human rights and preserving the natural environment or caring for people who are disadvantaged or vulnerable, um, you know, or just addressing injustices of all kinds. And these are political issues. And while, you know, of course, charities can't be party political. Uh, they are generally well aware of that and usually manage to stop short of breaking that rule. But, you know, as we say in the book, slavery didn't get abolished by providing soup kitchens for slaves. Very often the law does need to be changed. And, you know, the question about would, would this progress have been made without charities? Well, you know, I think one really good example is that forced marriage only became a crime in the UK in 2014. You know, that's seven years ago, and that was only after 10 years of concerted campaigning by a, a small charity called um, Karma Nirvana. Um, so, you know, would that change have happened without their work? Well, you know, who knows? Would we would we be there yet? 
Um, uh, Deborah Arnett, who's the Chief Executive of Action on Smoking and Health, um, she answered this question well, I thought, in a, in a Guardian article that she wrote after the smoking ban was introduced, um, where she said, some ideas reach a point at which their time has come, but some will also often need a vigorous campaign before politicians notice the obvious. Charities can't change policy and the law without working in partnership with sympathetic politicians and, and often the media. And that can be a long and difficult process. And as Tanya said, you have to sometimes wait for the right moment to come along, as happened with junk food advertising. Um, one of the um, sudden changes in government policy took place after Boris Johnson was hospitalised with coronavirus. And um, charities have been plugging away about the advertising of unhealthy foods for years and years and years. And when Boris came out of hospital, uh, there was an announcement that progress was going to be made. We've yet to see it happen, but uh, the pledge is there. Um, so it is a, a sort of a, quite a difficult and unpredictable environment that charities have to work in when it comes to trying to change law and policy. But um, to some, I mean, without the involvement of charities, I think the changes that you mentioned probably have happened eventually, but not so quickly and effectively. Yeah, yeah. Um, so my next question, I'm really keen to ask you because it's something that plays on my mind quite a lot. And it's, what do you think of the argument that charity is a sticking plaster over the failure of government and that it shouldn't be necessary to have charities? Well, it was the vision of some reformers when the welfare state was established that the state would take care of everyone from the cradle to the grave. And the contribution of charities considered to be uh, condescending, paternalistic, patchy, uh, would no longer be needed. But I always think that the architect of the welfare state, as Lord Beveridge, William Beveridge, um, I'm always reminded that he thought otherwise, and he wrote this volume in 1947 called Voluntary Action, a report on methods of social advance. And his argument was, to quote, the state cannot see to the rendering of all the services that are needed to make a good society. And he continued, quoting again, uh, voluntary action is needed to do things which the state should not do in the giving of advice or in organizing the use of leisure. It is needed to do things which the state is most unlikely to do. It is needed to pioneer ahead of the state and make experiments. It is needed to get services rendered which cannot be got by paying for them. End quote. And I think that events in the last 75 years, when charities have been active in all of those spheres that Beveridge mentions here, uh, prove the point, really. And, and yes, the state should and does provide vital services but there are economic and political constraints on that, and charities will always be active around the edges, you know, pushing at the envelope, as it were. Right. So it's like the state does the basic, and then charities add and advance and expand and make it more human and community-based somehow. And as Tanya says, there's nothing wrong with sticking plasters. That's a good point. That is a very good point. I think, yeah, that, that you know, the pandemic has shown the power of people and communities um, self-organising. You know, they get things done. Civil society does get things done and arguably more efficiently, more effectively and at much lower cost than the state can do. Um, and But I think it's also we should remember that charities 
they 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 appear at every kind of point on the spectrum of sort of public service delivery delivery so you know they provide public services on behalf of the government under contract uh, where there are gaps in public services they plug those with the things that we were talking about like the hospices and the um the lifeboats etc um, and they also provide things that the government would never provide. Um, so, you know, if charities weren't there to do it, those services probably would not, you know, would not be provided. And I'm thinking of, you know, there, there are loads of charities that fall into that, um, into that kind of category. Things like uh, homelessness charities, like DePaul and Crisis and St. Mungo's, um, charities that provide research and guidance and care and support for various uh, diseases or conditions like MS Society or Parkinson's UK or Lepra. And then you've got these um, kind of sort of more exceptional charities too, like Missing People is the charity that supports people whose loved ones have disappeared um, or Revitalize, which provides respite breaks uh, for parents of disabled children. Um, and Think Jessica, which pr protects elderly and vulnerable people from scammers and provides support to family members whose relatives have been duped by scammers and refuse to see it. You know, these are all what you could uh, describe as sticking plasters, I suppose. Um, and most people will only come into contact with those charities if they have a personal need to use them. But if you are that person, then that is a very, very welcome sticking plaster. Um, and thank goodness, you know, charities are there to provide them. It's like the hierarchy of need, isn't it? It's as if government provides the food and shelter and the bits we need to stay alive. And then charities take us through all the other stages, which are also equally necessary, but mm, yeah. not needed to stay alive. Yeah. I really, your book has honestly changed the way I think about charities. It's been really interesting. Um, we can't do this without talking about COVID-19. Um, so onto the impact of this. The stats in the book say that while the demand for service of charities during the pandemic increased by 42%, one in 10 charities will have closed down as a result of the pandemic by the end of 2020. That was the predicted figure. I don't know what the actual figure was. And many of these were on a knife edge already because of austerity. For those charities that have survived, how do you think they can start building back post-COVID? Yeah, um, you know, this is... It, it is very it's very hard to get a clear picture of how the sector has been affected by the pandemic because the sector is such a you know we, we call it a loose and baggy monster because it's you know it's so diverse there are so many different types and size of charities with different business models and it is you know it, it's hard to get a, a clear picture still at this stage I think a year in um to, uh, to to see how the how charities have been affected, but the, you know it shows the importance of infrastructure bodies who have been doing plenty of those have been doing regular surveys of their members throughout the pandemic to try and keep track of what's happening. Um, I spoke just yesterday actually to the chief executive of Clinks who um, who said that uh, charities in their sector, which is the criminal justice sector, that they've you know largely been saved so far by the generosity um, and quick responses of trusts and foundations who have stepped in with you know emergency co uh, COVID funds and um, diverted existing programs to emergency funding as well um, you know and those trusts and foundations are also part of the charity sector so um, you know so, so it's almost a double benefit there um, but lots you know there's no doubting that very many charities have had a really hard time we um we knew at, by the beginning of May last year 160,000 charity sector staff had been furloughed 
And, you know, we've had dozens and dozens of big charities announce, you know, really large swathes of, of job cuts. And, you know, a few charities have already been tipped over the edge. I know of two in Suffolk, um, the Animal Health Trust was a charity that was, you know, it had 15 million pounds income and it employed 260 people and it had been going for 78 years and it, you know, it closed because um, the pandemic basically pushed it over the edge. Age UK Suffolk also closed and there was um, a small charity uh, called African Initiatives um, and based in Bristol, spent 24 years supporting women and girls in rural Tanzania. And um, and that's winding up as well. So, you know, yeah, it, it's definitely the pandemic is definitely having an impact. Um, but charities will do all they can not to close. You know, they'll shrink and they'll reshape themselves and um, cut their cloth accordingly and and try and stagger on because, you know, they know that if they don't, no one's who's going to be there to to support their beneficiaries. Um, God, it just shows, doesn't it, that the um, devastation caused by the pandemic mm, just yeah. spreads out through mm. things like this, doesn't it? And, and the thing is, I think, you know, rest even when things reopen, you can't just, you know, restarting fundraising is not something that you can do just in an instant. You know, no. it's, a, it's, a, it's a process fundraising. And um yeah, it's just, it's going to be it's going to be difficult for for many charities. However, that said, there there you know you're you're on just to answer your question about building back, um, you know there has been some positives definitely. Uh, I would say you know there are a lot of charities who feel that the um, digital transformation that they were trying that they've been trying to drive through their charities for years, you know suddenly happened overnight. Yeah. Um, services moved online, fundraising moved online, so. You know, there's a that was a real benefit, and and a lot of uh, many charities will keep that going forward. So I'm sure, um, uh, and uh, uh, but you know, they're, they're, I don't think there's very much optimism at the moment. I think we I get the sense that charities are pretty knackered. Chief yeah. execs have had to lay people off, cut services, and you know, it's it's not over yet. I'm afraid. It's depressing, isn't it? Mm. But maybe we've all recognized the value of charities a bit more during the pandemic as well. Maybe we hope so. The long we hope so. Your book's quite timely for that. Um, so outside of the pandemic, speaking more broadly, what are the specific things that charities need to do, do you think, to keep their space in society and combat some of the negative press that we've talked about before? Uh, well, for some reason, uh, this put me in mind of... Uh, line in an early Bob Dylan song, Subterranean Homesick Blues, which goes, keep a clean nose, watch the plain clothes, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. And um, applying that to charities, I think that charities are keeping a cleaner nose, especially on matters like fundraising, where there's now a new regulator and the new codes, revised codes on governance and ethics, um, it all help in that whole process of um, keeping the clean nose. And um, so we've got the establishment of tighter regulation and higher standards um, of behaviour. It's a big advance on the days of the sort of industrial scale, direct mail and targeted old, old, older people that we mentioned earlier. Um, and charities need to remember that people have higher expectations of, of good behaviour in charities than in other sections society and the economy so what's the plain clothes well there are people on the prowl in politics and the media who are 
really just waiting for charities to slip up. Um, charities need to do all they can to anticipate and avert that kind of criticism and limit their vulnerability. And that involves sticking to your mission and, and, and following the rules. Um, things will always go wrong, of course, but those are the ideals. And knowing which way the wind is blowing, well, scanning the horizon for both opportunities and dangers. And examples Tanya's just given about um, reactions and, and interventions of charities during the pandemic uh, shows how that can happen. Generally, the media like to portray charities as either heroes or, or villains and often ignore the wide landscape in between. But by and large, I think the public are highly supportive of charities. Yeah, and I think uh, while I absolutely agree with Steve that charities are held to higher standards than other sectors, I do think charities shouldn't spend too much time worrying about you know, the wider sector at large, really. They should just be focusing on doing their own thing and doing it really well. Um, you know, make sure that they're on top of all of, of governance. Basically, that's a you know that's the kind of starting point. You know, boards of trustees have to be all across the strategy, stewardship, um, and compliance. But there are plenty of really accessible and helpful tools like the Charity Governance Code, Charity Ethical Principles, um, to help them. So there should be you know, no excuse for not being on top of the basics, really. And um, we can only hope that they will be supported by the government in what they do. We can. You talk a lot in the book about the roles of the charity commission and government, which actually seem to have made life more difficult for charities in many ways. Can you just expand on that? Well, as we've touched on, charities have been working in a, a harsher political and regulatory environment during the last dec decade or so. The government's tried to limit the campaigning and lobbying activities of charities, and the Charity Commission has become a less indulgent and more active regulator. The overall effect is that charities have experienced what's been described as a, a, a chilling effect and are generally more cautious about doing anything that might attract criticism. Uh, the government has protected charities, and during the pandemic um, has provided a £750 million grant fund that has helped hospices and arts, charities in particular. And generally speaking, governments of all stripes recognise the, uh, the contribution that, that charities make to society. Um, and in general, the Charity Commission protects charities in the sense that it, it, it sets up and enforces high standards of behaviour. And it also speaks up, at least from time to time, in, for the role that charities do play in society. However, it has a, a delicate balance. It, it tends to do this with half an eye on what the government is saying. It is, after all, a, a, a government department, a non-ministerial government department. And um, I suppose a, an example of what I'm talking about is the recent um, culture war spat <laughs> over the National Trust, which produced what I thought was a very well-researched document about the connection between its properties and colonialism and historic slavery and this brought down upon them the ire of um, an element of the conservative party uh, a group called the common sense group who attacked this as so-called rewriting history and um, the government conceded a debate a westminster hall debate 
where all this criticism of the National Trust was was vented, and and the minister was, um, I think, slightly embarrassed because he sort of knew that it was a bit over the top, but he had to uh, pay lip service to the criticism coming from from the back benches, and so that's what happened in 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 government circles, and then the charity commission did um, an inquiry into whether the uh, National Trust had overstepped the mark and could only conclude that it hadn't and that it was um, it was following its charitable purposes. Uh, it hadn't contravened charity law in any way. Um, but at the same time, the Commission felt obliged to say um, that the charity, uh, I'm quoting, uh, did not fully preempt or manage the potential risks to the charity. So there's, there's the Charity Commission, as I say, with, with half an eye on what the government is saying or thinking. I think, by and large, the Charity Commission um, is, is very straight with charities and deals with them according to the law. But when high-profile or political cases crop up, it all becomes a little bit more de- uh, delicate and, and, and ticklish because of this um, uh, status of the Charity Commission as a non-ministerial department. And something we explore in the book slightly, the, um, uh, the the tendency for the chairs of the Charity Commission to be political appointments. Um, this is something that's really gathered momentum since change in the law in 2006. And um, yeah, so it's an uneasy relationship. Tanya, did you have anything to add there? Um, well, uh... <laughs> I'm not sure I would agree with Steve's assessment that the government does recognise the benefits that charities bring, actually. I think there's a real sense within the sector at the moment, especially, that the government um, either doesn't know the value that charities bring or doesn't care, really. You know, when Rishi Sunak um, announced the £750 million fund, coronavirus emergency fund for the sector, and he said, you know, we need the gentleness of charity at this point, you know, the gentleness of charity, that really did not go down well and just kind of perfectly demonstrated that ministers have very little comprehension of what the sector really is all about. I think your book shows that charity is actually anything but gentle, really, exactly. isn't it? The power of what they do is huge. And yes. that just totally underplays it, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yep. Um, okay, so as a final question, how would you like the book to change people's views and what do you want it to achieve to both of you? Well, we hope that by telling some of the good stories while also analysing the difficulties and failures, the book will increase awareness of charities in the round and the way they're woven into the fabric of our national life. Uh, things do go wrong, um, mistakes are made. Um, as in all walks of life. But I feel that charities um, act as the conscience of society and as a good Samaritan, and in a sense they represent the better part of human nature. And that's the message that I hope the uh, book will help to convey. Tanya? Yes, uh, well, you know, obviously I'll echo that. Um, For me, I think if this book can help people have a better grasp of the the huge depth and breadth of activity that takes place across the charity sector in the UK and um, enables people 
to realise that the majority of charities are well run and effective um, and do great things in often very difficult circumstances, then I will be happy that uh, that we've achieved our objective. Because I, I think that, you know, instead of always being on the receiving end of people's disapproval and criticism, charities could really use a break. And I think they deserve a bit more love and support from the society that they serve. Um, and I mean from the public as well as politicians, especially as we head into the next stage of whatever is coming next from this pandemic. Yeah, and your book absolutely does that for charities. It really does show how, like you said, Steve, how they are like the conscience of society and we can't really do without them, I don't think. Um, thank you very much, Steve, Tanya, for speaking to me today. Thank you. Um, more information about the book um, by Stephen Cook and Tanya Mason, which is called What Have Charities Ever Done For Us? The Stories Behind the Headlines is available from Policy Press. Um, you can find out more at policy.bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.